Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 43. We're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to start with verse 1. This is the word of God. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, jumping down to 15, go again, buy us a little food. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them in Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The men did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in. So they may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. And he said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of the sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Jumping down to 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the home house to him the present they had with him and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about the welfare and he said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well, he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brothers, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber, and he wept there. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this chance to dig further into your word. Thank you for... Joseph, for the flaws in him and each one in this scene that we'll be discovering today. And we, we ask, Laura, that you would graciously reach down and teach us from your word. We thank you for the chance to submit ourselves not to a person, but to the God of the universe who has put his thoughts and his instruction and left them for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I do appreciate the work. I, I thank to Paul Scrabeck yesterday as we talked briefly about just the work that's gone on with updating policies and, and things as it relates to this crazy time we're living in. I, I was very encouraged this morning by one of the things that I've longed for for many, many years as I've sat in church and listened to people sing, and I'm so glad there is now a non-singing room. And some of you will get a notice this week as to your assignment there. Don't take it personally. You're just, just being a blessing to the others by going to your assigned seat. 
Well, we're in the book of Genesis, uh, the story of Joseph, and the Joseph story continues. You know, in one sense, there's not a great deal of action. Much of this story that we're going to face here today is, is a story that involves the conversations that go on that do move the story forward. There's conversations that, that are between Judah and his brothers and Jacob. Is it time to return to Egypt? The food is getting low. The famine continues. Will we go back? And this discussion about, well, will you let Benjamin go with us? There's the interaction between Joseph's brothers as they return to Egypt. Benjamin is now with them. But they carry with them not just the guilt of 20 years ago, but the weightiness of wondering, are they going to view us as thieves as soon as we get there? Remember, their money that they went and paid the first time in Egypt, the first trip, they found in their grain sacks as they headed home and found the rest of it when they got home. What's going to happen to us? And then there's this tremendous scene of Joseph not only seeing his brothers, now this time for a second time, but his brother Benjamin. Well, God's plan advances here, but I see in this story some some marked contrasts between some of the key characters. And I want to make that a significant part of what we observe today. I don't want to venture into speculation. There's, it's a long chapter, but there's so much that we don't know of behind-the-scenes conversations. We can't pretend we know every motive by any means. But I do think there's some significant things that we can count on for our instruction here. And I want to jump right into those. And the first is this, that in the first 14 verses, we see two lead characters, Jacob, and we see his fourth son, Judah. And, uh, you know, during this election cycle, I, you know, I've noticed, I don't know if the rest of you have noticed, but I've noticed such kind words between those running. I've noticed such maturity in how they've handled each and every question that's come. I <laughs> yet to see any pettiness, yet to see any just, you know, dark side to these individuals. Obviously, I say that in jest, and I don't say that as, as someone perfect pointing at sinners, but a sinner just observing other sinners during an election cycle. But what is perhaps disturbing to a greater degree than just what we're already seeing, but is the average age, I think, of those who are the main characters in this. Across our country, it seems like maybe the average age is mid-70s for those who are carrying on in ways that just we would at best call it bad behavior. But you know what? We see it and are reminded here in Genesis 43 that that did not begin in 2020 with an election cycle in a very difficult year. Jacob, in fact, would be much older than any of these characters in our world today that we might point at and be disappointed in their character or their behavior or their words or their handling of matters. Jacob will learn a few chapters later when he arrives and Pharaoh asks him, how old are you? He says, I'm 130 years old. So Jacob has 55 years on some of our politicians. And yet we see in him behavior that is him magnifying ways in which he's had character flaws for many years. 
And frankly, it's a significant warning to all of us who are getting older. And the last I checked, every one of you is a day older than you were since yesterday. Genesis 43 has Jacob distraught and lashing out, really. Uh, You know, one person has said it this way. You know, one commentator said it this way. In Genesis uh, 43 here, and from the chapter before, we see Jacob descend into sorrow, into self-blame, into self-pity. He's at his nadar. It's a great cocktail word for just his lowest point in terms of character and display of who he really is. Now, some of it is understandable. I don't want us to be more harsh than the situation deserves. A famine is going on. He has indeed lost a dear son. It's been two decades, and we certainly don't want to fault somebody for, for grief in, their, in this life. The distra- dist- but, but he is one, we've got to remind ourselves, who also has wrestled with angels. He's one that has seen God's providence bring blessing repeatedly in his 13 decades of life. He's one whose whose own grandfather was given the greatest of promises in the Old Testament. His grandfather, remind yourselves, is Abraham, who was given this tremendous promise of blessing for you and your generations. And he's only a grandson. And yet we see Jacob seeming to not cling to those things, but fall into habits like we see in verse 6, blaming his sons for what really was out of their control. Why did you treat me so badly, he looks them in the eye and says, to tell the man you had another brother. He's blaming them for something that was totally outside their control. They, They speak up. Judah had begun the conversation, and now they all chime in. How could we know when he's asking us about our family, he'd say, hey, so why don't you bring him back the next time? Totally logical, totally appropriate response, but in response to a question that is just an unhealthy, unfitting blaming of his own sons during a time of stress, of such famine and such turmoil in them. And his favoritism, we see it here just like we've been seeing. You've heard it from other preachers in recent weeks. It's just there right on the pages. The favoritism that was there with Joseph has been transferred to Benjamin. And it's as ugly 20 years later as it was two decades before. It's ugly because we see Jacob, when they sent the sons, his sons down the first time, it said back at the beginning of chapter 42, he didn't send Benjamin, here's the words, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Ten other guys he's willing to send. Ten other sons he's willing to send but he's not willing to send him because something might happen. You imagine being a, you know, your dad saying to you, you're one of a few boys, and he says, boys, take the old car on the highway, but I don't want, and he names one of you staying back because that car's really unsafe. I wouldn't want to put you at risk. That'd make the other guys feel. Well, that's just what's happening. And, and some have speculated, well, maybe, maybe he's actually worried that, that these brothers will do something to Benjamin. You know, there's a lot of people have studied this and said, you know, did Jacob in his mind wrestle with just wondering all these years, did the brothers themselves do something to Joseph? Did they, did they really do something? And, and you don't get the indication they ever talked about it. But 
If that's the case, he's worried about just letting his brothers, you know, be with him in a foreign land. Jacob is still to blame because his favoritism, just as it did two, two, 20 years and 25 years before, has created, no doubt, a rift, a, a, a sense of animosity, probably potentially the same hatred that Joseph felt from them years before. Well, we see that as he's gotten older, he has allowed his flaws to just grow magnified. And we see the ripple effect in, in his family's lives, in the, the life of his family. But we can be encouraged by jo- Judah here, who is really the main brother who is interacting with, with Jacob during this. We've read much of that already in our scripture reading. He's, he's reminding Jacob, we can't go down. The man made clear to us without Benjamin coming, we will not see his face. In fact, he really just threatened us. Don't bring, don't bring yourselves back without him. You know, Judah is one that we know will one day be called that lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one whose great, 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 put a few more greats in their grandson, will be none less than Jesus Christ. And yet we find him somewhere in middle age or a little bit beyond. You know, picture Joseph, 39, 40. I don't know exactly how much older Judah was. One's four, one's 11 in the order. You know, some think just a few years, some think maybe 10, 20 years older, but he's maybe 50. Maybe he's 55, maybe he's 48. He's somewhere at that stage of life, and he hasn't done anything to commend himself to us as being deserving of having the Savior of the world be his grandson. But we see here a change. Now you say, well, what has he done? What, why are you so against this guy? I'm just, I'm just putting the facts up there. Just putting the facts up that he was the one that said, let's sell him into slavery when Joseph was in the pit. Now you might say, well, some of them wanted to murder him. Yeah, but it's not like he's the righteous guy by saying, let's just sell him into slavery. He was the one that later on would marry a pagan woman, a Canaanite woman. He was one that would raise two sons that, that get a distinction we do not see very often in the scriptures where it says their evil was so great, God put them to death. You don't read that too often in all of the Bible. You read that about Judah's two sons. And then he had children by Tamar, his very own daughter-in-law, that he had treated poorly after her husband died, not provided another husband for her, or at least made that a priority. And he had children, thinking she was a prostitute. He had children by his own daughter-in-law. And yet we see somewhere in in his life, around age 50, we see someone beginning to show promise. What gives hope for, for all of us who are getting along in years that God still works and we see it in, in just the fact that he is clearly the leader. He's the one, just early on in verse 43, that steps forward and is the spokesman for the group. We see when, when Jacob starts that blaming game, I already mentioned that verse, you know, when he said to them, why are you treating me so badly? Why did you tell him I had a brother? Others chime in, the other brothers chime in and explain, you know, why are you fussing at us, Dad? You know, he just was asking us questions. And, and as I read it, Judah doesn't speak up then. He lets the heat settle down, and then he continues his reasoned, respectful, 
but forceful argument. He's someone to admire in this chapter here. He's not derailed by Jacob's whining, and, and finally he pretends, he, he, pretends, he pledges himself to protect Benjamin. And he does it in a way that I'm sure seemed very different than what we read at the end of chapter 42. When Reuben, as they got back and, and, and they were telling, downloading the story with Jacob, you know, Reuben just says, you know, well, well you, I'll take Benjamin. If I don't come back, you can kill my two sons. What careless. <laughs> I, I wish that was not even in the Bible. It's just, it's just the kind of thing that is just shameful for a grown man to speak that way. But Judah says, I will put my life, I will pledge my life. And the rest of the story will, will show us, not in this chapter, but in future chapters, he meant it. He was a man of his word when he said, I will pledge my life to see that Benjamin comes back. Well, I see in these two men that neither are young. I see in Jacob that flaws not addressed not yielded to God's refinement, not shaped by Scripture, and not shaped by perhaps constructive criticism of others, not shaped by the promptings of God's Spirit, that they grow magnified. But I am thankful for Judah. I'm thankful for just hearing of, of, of a man, a woman in this church shared, I overheard her talking about just that very day, it was just a few weeks ago, she had talked with her dad. And she talked, frankly, the tears came unexpectedly as she talked about just his godly concern for her and her kids and her life. He spoke as a growing man of God. Well, Judah is one that can encourage us that God desires to be at work even if we have not yielded for many years or until later in life. You know, these boys continue on their way at the end, the middle of about a third of the way through the chapter, and they continue back as really, I would call, guilt-ridden brothers returning to Egypt. The first uh, trip, you might remember, got off script a bit. The plan was that they would go to Egypt, the ten of them. It was famine. They heard that there was grain in Egypt. They would go, and they would bring back grain. Of course, they pay for it and bring back grain, and they would hope that I'm sure that the famine would resolve, that, that the next year would be better. But certainly things got off script when they met Joseph, didn't recognize him, but met the main leader, the person who was in charge in all the Egyptian kingdom of overseeing this and meet him face to face. He treats them poorly, they would say. They treat him at least harshly is the word. He puts them in custody for three days. Before they leave, he bounds Simeon right in front of them, their brother, and holds him there, essentially as, as a ransom, as a, a, a token of don't come back unless you have Benjamin. And then on the way back, they find that at least in one sack, all the money for one brother was still in his sack. I want you to read the response just looking back to the last chapter in verses 27 in 28. Listen to their response as these is on this trip back from a trip that really had derailed from much of what they thought would happen. And as one of them opened up his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw the money in the money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, 
My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of the sack. At this, their hearts failed them. They turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? They go home and unpack the story for Jacob. They tell him of what had happened. I just have reminded you of, of that. And then as, as they're literally, it seems almost as they're literally unpacking the story, they're unpacking the sacks of grain. And it was not just one brother out of, out of them that had his full amount of money returned in the sack. It is all of their money. And listen to Jacob's response, same chapter, chapter 35, 42, but looking down at verse 35. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said, you've bereaved me, my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. It's as if God is against me is the family motto. What is this that God has done to us? That's the brothers. All this has come against me is the patriarch. Well, I want to see what happens as we look at our passage in chapter 23 of how they were treated differently as they return. Let's see how the guilt follows them, however, to Egypt. And let's look in our section in chapter 43. I want to look at verses 19 down to verse 23. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, My Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Our money... In full weight. So we, we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. The steward. High ranking man in Joseph, under Joseph's guidance. The steward replied, Shalom. That's what it says in Hebrew. Shalom. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I had received the money. You know, the guilt for these brothers keeps resurfacing. You know, they've never been punished. In fact, there's nothing about these stories, the the progress of the story, that, that leads us to believe they've ever been found out. Maybe Jacob had... Some suspicion, but they've never been found out. But they've been tortured. They have been tortured. God is against us in bad times, they assume. Three days in custody in the last chapter when they first see Joseph. And, and it's on emerging from that time that they, they speak right in front of Joseph, but it's emerging from that particularly uncertain, fearful, scared to death, what's going to happen time, that they say, we're, we're being punished for what we did. They have the sense very clearly from their guilt that God is against them. 
But then on the way home, money's back in the sack. Now, what would be your spiritual response if you had gotten, got home and there's a sack that you had just gotten, you just gotten, you know, you went and got some post-Halloween candy. It's on sale. And you get home, you've just stocked up. I see my nephew, Matt, you've just stocked up. It's going to carry you through Christmas, maybe. You're going to hide it from the kids. And you get home and you open it up, and there's your money, too. It's like, woohoo! And these guys don't respond that way. They see, in, in even this, uh, they're fearful. And maybe rightly so, but it is interesting that their first thoughts are those of fear that in good times or bad times, the only spin they can put on it is God is against us. And then we see here when they're invited. You know, they arrive there, and, and Joseph sees them at a distance. It doesn't seem like he greets them at that point, but he sends a message to them, sends a steward, come, you're going to dine at the master's home at noon today. So presumably it's morning time, and a few hours later, they're going to dine they're as, on, as special guests. We don't know if they're going to be honored or not, but it's special guests. And their only read on that is what's going to happen? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to us? That's maybe some of the sad part of when guilt is deep and it's unresolved. It doesn't matter the circumstance. There can be an ongoing, unrelenting feeling that God is against me. You know, the question for you is, is God for you or against you? I don't know if there's any more important or more revealing question I could ask your soul. Is God for you or is God against you? You know, many people like these brothers get it wrong. It's very dangerous when, when you get it wrong thinking God is for you and Christ is not your Savior. Because the scriptures say, apart from Jesus Christ, he is against you. He is against your sin and the punishment means he is, his wrath is against you. The other side of it is it is just as, as, as sad to see the Christian who knows that Jesus Christ has embraced faith in Christ as payment for their sins, as payment for their guilt, still living like these brothers. Of, but he hasn't forgiven that. And I'm feeling the weight of the past despite knowing Jesus is Savior. You know, the scriptures say to us in Romans 8, to listen to these great words, if God is for us, what does it say? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, that answer has everything to do with the place that Christ has in your life. And I want to say, be right with God and know that he is for you. And if you are right with God, make sure you keep your distance from this kind of thinking of these brothers. That, that he's looking to resurrect guilt from the past. So when trials come, when you are fearful, when you're not seeing God's direction, 
when you're not wondering where he is, don't give in to their thinking, but remember that God is for me. Bitterness and compassion. They're both evident in this chapter. And I would say to you that bitterness and compassion are both nearsighted. Joseph is seeing his brothers here for a second time, and he's also seeing Benjamin for a first time. I grew up, and we spent some of our summers hanging out at a park where there was a swimming pool not too far away. And there was a kid older than us. We were probably my brothers. I'm the oldest of four boys. We were probably maybe six and eight and nine, ten, somewhere in there. When he is a mid-teen who had grown tall and who was just plain mean, seemed to be mean to us along with many others. I remember in the swimming pool. He's the only person I can think of, outside of maybe an uncle I didn't like, that would dunk me in the swimming pool and dunk me more than once when I really didn't want to. And then strangely, one of the few times my brotherly compassion for younger brothers would actually well up was when I'd see him dunk my brothers too. He was someone that we didn't like, tried to stay away from. And frankly, I forgot about him for many years. My brother, like me, is a physician. He's a family doctor. And he had a man come into his office a few years back that said, the blood bag won't take my money. I'm sorry, it won't take my money. The blood bank won't take my blood. They don't want it. I got a letter, and he showed the letter and says, I have HIV, and I need to be tested to see if they're right. It was, of course, this teenager now grown up. My brother hadn't seen him in years, 15, 20 years. And he said, I said, what did you remember? You know, I actually literally asked him this this past week as I thought of, of this encounter. And he said, though the encounter is probably 15 years ago, He says, I can remember his words when he said, I hope no one thinks I'm going to act any differently now. He remained as hardened and as harsh as you might have seen the seeds as a teenager all those years ago. And I said, how did it make you feel? And my brother, who is a believer, said, strangely, I felt pity for him. You know, it's in part, no doubt, that my brother is a Christ follower that enabled that to happen. But I want to submit to you, there is another ingredient that is common in life. And that is, when you sit that close to someone, and when you hear their story, and when God is working in your life, there is pity, there is hurt that can be dealt with in a way that you just don't do when you're not face-to-face with someone. I kind of wonder if Joseph actually misnamed his first son Manasseh. In Hebrew, it's the words, God's made me forget. That's what he called his first son back in Genesis 41, when he said, I called my first son that because God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Well... I don't know if God made him forget it, but I do know God made him remember it. God orchestrated in his life this situation where God made him remember both his hurt and any bitterness that you can understand was still there, along with 
compassion that perhaps he had let go of as well, and mercy. You know, bitterness was aroused when he saw his brothers in the last chapter. Remember, he, he saw them from a distance, and he treated them, the words are, spoke roughly to them. That's what they even said when they got back to jo- Jacob. They said, he spoke roughly to us, harshly to us. You know, he had thrown them into the, and locked them up for three days. He, he had even said after three days, bring my youngest, bring your youngest brother to me so that you will not die. That's pretty harsh. Now, whether he meant he was going to put them to death or whether he meant I will not give you grain and you're going to die of famine, either way, those aren't pleasant words for someone to say to another person. You know, scholar Gordon Wenham says it this way, Joseph's motives for how he treats his brothers here may have, have been explained a variety of ways. He's giving them punishment. He's testing them. He's teaching them. Oh, that's a nice spin. He's fulfilling the dream of all those years ago that God gave him. And Wenham, I think, with uh, much wisdom says, all of them are right. Joseph, like all of us, is a complex creature, and I suspect there's elements of all of those things that are right. You can put a positive spin, a negative spin, and like most things in life, there's probably quite a bit of both there. But we see in chapter 43 a changed Joseph. I want to read to you again from chapter 43 how Joseph greets his brothers this second time. And notice the change from what I just described and recapped from the last chapter. Chapter verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house, slaughter an animal, make it ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. And then looking down at verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had brought And bowed down to him to the ground. And Joseph inquired about their welfare. Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? Joseph now is is treating them with kindness, with generosity, and with graciousness that we have every reason to believe was genuine. You know, why the change? Why the change from how he treated them at the beginning of just the first visit, not that long ago. I suspect that that three days in custody had something to do with it. You remember the three days that he had the brothers bound. They were fearful, fretting for their fate. The guilt of 20 years is now really percolating to the surface. They're the ones that say right at the end of those three days, we are guilty concerning our brother, chapter 42, verse 21. We are guilty, and that is why this distress has come upon us. Those three days, a lot happened. But you say, you're talking about the brothers. I thought you were talking about Joseph, that he was the one that changed. Yes, I think Joseph, in those same three days, changed significantly as well. You know, face to face, he was faced now with, with memories, with the injustices, Maybe a a fresh recall of how scared he felt in that pit. Maybe he he felt with a vividness that that he thought was forgotten 
he thought was buried, what it was like to have ten of your older brothers attack you, strip you of the clothes you are wearing, and throw you in a pit, and ignore your screams for help. Well, Leon Cass says, the brothers show how guilt lives in the human soul, and it can well up from deeply buried stores. And I would say, and so can hurt, and so can bitterness. But I think Joseph worked through those, possibly in large, in large degree, during those three days, just seeing what changed. Certainly his behavior changed. He threw him into those three days of confinement, saying, I'm going to keep nine of you here and let one of you go home. When they come out, he says, I'll keep one of you here and let the other nine go home. Maybe thinking in his head, God has changed me. Uh, I, I need to make sure they get enough grain back to feed the family, and one man can't do it. I really don't need to keep nine of my brothers here. But I think his changed heart is evident maybe more in our chapter than it was even at the conclusion of the last visit. When he welcomes them... And again, every evidence is genuinely with graciousness and with kindness. You know, some few years ago, I had the chance to sit down with, with a friend who had gotten a bad diagnosis. She was a young mom with kids at the time, and she, she had been told she had cancer that had spread and that getting on to some kind of treatment as quick as possible was very important. She was a strong personality at that time, I recall, and, and so when I sat down with her, I had heard of uh, some of you know, what her plans were. I sat down with her, and I will say, it's not my normal course, but in my 30 years of being a physician, I don't think I've ever been as forceful, as blunt with someone about what I thought they were choosing to do. I don't recall in 30 years of being a physician and talking with thousands of people, sometimes in some pretty dire straits, saying, I think you're committing suicide. It was an hour conversation she and I had, with her husband uh, being right there the whole time. And though we saw each other, we were both Christ followers, and we would see each other from time to time, needless to say, there was more than a little awkwardness and distance. And so, at least for another two years, there was very little said until we had a chance to have a conversation, I say, nearly two years later. I showed up uninvited. I needed to because at that time, her life was ebbing away and only some close family and, and the nurses were attending to her. And for whatever reason, God gave us about 20 minutes uninterrupted with no one else sitting in the room except the two of us. And I pulled up a chair, and I held her hand, and I remember looking in her eyes and saying, it's good to see you. And though her face was gaunt and pale, she was much less of the person I had seen before physically. Her tears just rolled down. There was no need for either one of us to say, well, you're going to say, I told you so. There was no even desire to say something like that. 
There was, there was no part that I think welled up in her to say, is this what you wanted to see? There was just a time that if you asked me two words to describe our interaction, that time together, I would say sacred and precious. Our time had come to an end. I knew I needed to leave. I kissed her on the forehead and said goodbye, knowing that I would not see her again in this life. And she died about two weeks later. I don't know about her, but I can say that for me, some years later, the goodness of that interaction runs deep. And so does the blessing. You know, God at times brings us face to face, introduces us back to something that we need to face. And if by his grace we navigate through that with his strength, hopefully with his words, with his heart, we will be, like Joseph, the better for it. At the end here, we see his compassion aroused for, for Joseph. For, I'm sorry, for Benjamin, his little brother. It says in verse 29, Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother? God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. You know, that plays out over and over again. Compassion growing warm and affecting us for God's good and for our good. I, I think if you, were, if you and I were to show up at, at say, the next, when it meets again, a, a Special Olympics, and see people of various disabilities giving their all on the track, in the swimming pool, on the basketball court, the conversation that I might encourage us to have is to simply ask a question, not of one of those athletes, but of one of the volunteers, maybe one that has shown up year after year. And regardless of their size or shape or ethnicity or their athletic talent, to ask them the question, why are you here? And they would say, do you have time for a story? And no doubt that story would be a time when compassion grew because of a family member, maybe a little sister like mine who had Down syndrome, maybe an uncle that was with cerebral palsy that you loved with all your heart as a kid. Maybe it was someone else, a boy that lived next door, a girl that you sat next to in the lunchroom because she wasn't in your classroom in school, but you got to see her at lunch. And you saw compassion in yourself well up. I saw that some miles away, 10,000 miles away some years back, I was talking with a man who was pastor of a leper colony in Myanmar. And I was talking with him, and I said, I said, Brother Pastor, I know your story. I know why you're here. But I looked at his wife, who was seated, seated just around from the table, and I said, why is she here? And he said to me, well, he smiled. We got married, and I was already the pastor here. And for those first few months... She would stay back two hours away by, by transport. She would stay back and live with family we had. And I would serve those here in this leper colony for usually five days a week. And I would go back 
take the journey each way, a couple hours by public transport, and see her. And then I would leave and return, and we would do it all over again, week after week. One day I got up, he said, to return back to this place where we were sitting, this church, this little flock, and he said, I noticed it was not my bags that were packed only by the door, but hers as well. And he said, why are your bags there? And she said, I'm going with you. And he said, indeed, she came back with me, took the rough bus ride there, walked the last six, eight miles that it took to get to this place where those without fingers, disfigured in their faces by the leprosy, gathered and tried to live their lives in a relative isolation from the rest of society. And she attended church with him where malaria went, ran rampant, and so did God's spirit. And he said with a smile, and she's never asked to leave. Compassion is nearsighted. And God uses it over and over again to fuel the greatest, in my opinion, of passion for service, whether near or far. He does it over and over again. The overriding theme in this, in this chapter 43, though I don't think is compassion, it's guilt. It's guilt that has not been fully dealt with. You know, Judah, we see one of these brothers dealing with this guilt, would one day be an ancestor of a Savior who came to take away the guilt of all that would place their faith and trust in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So in faith, I ask you to believe on that Savior who desires with all his heart, with all of his divine heart, to take away every ounce of guilt you feel. Because I would like to be able to say to you, based on the truths of the scripture, that when God looks at you, he does not forget what Jesus has done. And if you know that Jesus as your Savior, I want to encourage you with all my heart that if that Jesus has taken away your guilt, don't let any situation arise. Don't, don't follow in the thinking of these brothers that whether it's something good or whether it's something bad, you would ever dare to think that God is against you. That guilt has any place in your standing before a righteous and holy and loving God. Because I would say to you, just as I would say to a new Christian, that when God looks at your life, he does not forget what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this story. Thank you that you change lives, you deal with guilt, you arouse compassion. You simply are at work. And I, may we be receptive to your work in our lives. May we be burdened to see you working at the lives of those in our office place, across the street, at the desk next to us, family members that have yet to name. Jesus is Lord. We desire for this week to be one that we see you ruling. We even pray for these elections, Father. We simply pray as best we can, thy will be done.
and we entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.